the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program on a brand new week. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you've tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or questions about our faith, questions about what God might be doing in your life. We'll do the best we can, and all you have to do is call 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free if you're outside of the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, First, I just have to say uh, hello to and a big thank you. I got to spend some time with some dear friends who uh, Paula and I did this today um, in our church for a long time. The military took them away while they've been back. Uh, uh, Justine came back for the women's retreat, so we got to spend a um, large part of the afternoon with them today. And I just want to uh, say hello to Lauren and to Audrey and to Ian. Thank you for spending some time with us. It was a blast. And Lauren, you're asking some really good questions. So you make sure your daddy keeps you in the Bible. Thanks for spending some time. Uh, Also, I want to thank all of you for your prayers uh, for our ladies retreat. It went wonderfully. Uh, Nearly 300 women were out there and uh, weather was great. Jesus was moving. Some ladies got saved. Uh, It was just a really good time and I really do appreciate your prayers. It's not just me being uh, saying spiritual things. I really appreciate the prayers that were there. There were some from the radio audience that came out as well so thank you for doing that. Uh, In fact tonight, uh, Monday night is our men's and women's and youth Bible studies. That'll be at 7 o'clock. But tonight, the ladies are going to do sort of what I call a a retreat debrief. Um, Some of the ladies are going to share. It'll be this Monday and next Monday. uh, Share what the Lord is doing in their heart while they were out there. It's always a great time. And for anybody who uh, would have liked to have gone but wasn't able to go, This is an opportunity for you to come for uh, the next couple of Monday nights and uh, spend some time sort of learning what God was doing and sharing um, um, his heart with the ladies. They will share their heart with you, and um, and you'll be blessed. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Child care, of course, is provided. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, I guess that's all I got going on. A lot of, lot of neat stuff. Before I go to questions, um, since Friday's program, if any of you listened to Friday's program, um, we had a, a man who is not an honest guy. He calls in uh, using different names all the time to um, 
beat the screeners, uh, and he always wants to, to to blast about Rick Warren, and that sort of set off a firestorm. We had a couple other people call and uh, basically condemn me. One guy said I was going to hell because I didn't warn the church about Rick Warren, um, and uh, not just the phone calls uh, on the program Friday. Uh, we've had people calling into the church. Uh, I, I don't know whether um, there's an organized effort or what, but uh, I want to deal with this one final time, uh, and I want to deal with it from both perspectives. Um, any Christian who would spread lies about Rick Warren. We had a rambling phone call from a woman who said he's involved some way in some murder and how anybody could listen to him. You people need to get saved. A real believer can't speak like that about somebody based on um, internet websites. Here's a scoop for all of you. Just because something's on the internet doesn't make it true. And we have to be more responsible. You know, people wonder why there isn't more power in the church. Well, this is a big reason. There's no unity. Jesus prayed for unity. And I'm not talking about unity in terms of essentials of the faith. There has to be unity, and there are things that are worth fighting over. But there has to be unity of love and unity of heart. And those who would spread lies about somebody, those who would judge someone's heart, well, they need to get right with Jesus. And we have to do better. We have to be better. So it's really important that we get this right or we lose everything that God wants to do in and through his church. So I'm going to plead with you. I don't want to deal with any more Rick Warren questions. He is a believer. I know him personally. He loves Jesus. There are things that he says and does that I don't agree with. But that in no way diminishes the fact that he's going to be in heaven forever and God is going to look at him and say, well done. None of us are going to stand before Jesus and give account of Rick Warren's ministry. He's going to do that alone. I'll never understand why he's such a lightning rod other than the fact that he's got a huge church and God is using him and people are jealous and they're doing the work of the enemy. You can't be a Christian and speak the way you are about other believers. Now, let me approach this very quickly from the other direction. I got some other ones. I won't say a name here because there was more than one email. But this is from a regular listener. Um, this email says, Pastor Ron, I agree that it's not good to knock or put down other pastors. And please forgive me, but I heard you say not good things about Pastor John MacArthur. And that breaks my heart because I've grown and continue to grow in the word through him and Rick Warren and you. So here's somebody who likes Rick Warren. And I'm being criticized on the other direction. I've never said anything bad about John MacArthur or Rick Warren and somebody else who emailed angry because I said bad things about purpose-driven life. And I didn't. I just said I don't like it. John MacArthur is a reformed Calvinist. And he's wrong. But I've never asked John MacArthur question. We've got more John MacArthur questions, by the way, over the years than Rick Warren questions by far. And I've never answered those questions without first saying that John MacArthur is a believer in the Lord, a brother. God has used him wonderfully. He is a good, if not great, Bible teacher. And he has lots and lots of rewards waiting for him when he gets to heaven. But he's wrong about his systematic theology. It's just that simple. That's not saying anything bad about him. Just like saying, I don't like the purpose-driven life or celebrate recovery, which was part of the question last week. That's not saying anything bad about Rick Warren. That's just looking at their work, and I always do it. I only do it in response to a question. One of the things that I've purposed in my heart to do on this program now for six years is not duck questions. And I've never said anything bad about another believer. I have called out false teachers. The Bible tells us to do that. 
but again, only in response to questions. And the fact that I don't agree with someone or I think that purpose-driven life or celebrate recovery are not biblical things or practices isn't saying something bad about Rick Warren. I consider Rick a friend. And I wish people would listen before they would respond. So for the person who wrote this comment, um, I too have learned from John MacArthur. Um, but he's wrong about some things that's not knocking him. He would say the same thing about me, except that he's maybe learned from me, but he would, he would say I'm certain that he's wrong. That's all. So let's put Rick Warren to rest for the week. Here's a question from Scott on our email inbox. He said, Pastor Ron, yesterday in our study in Romans 15, you referred to the church at Rome. Was that church a church or a group of smaller churches, home churches? Um, Scott, the church in Rome, the, the church, whenever you see the church referred to uh, in the New Testament, everywhere except uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus' letters, it refers to the church at large, not a specific church. Uh, sometimes Paul will say uh, greetings to somebody like he did to Philemon uh, and, to, and the church it meets in your home, those kind of things. Well, he's talking about those, those groups of churches, but we, we're talking generally about the universal church, the church of Jesus Christ, those who are born-again Christians. And so it's not a church, and I think sometimes in the West we kind of look at church as a big building where we go and people gather. Um, but that's not the church. That's just a building where Christians who are part of the church go. I think it's very important to have that perspective, Scott, rather than home churches. It is true that the, the churches uh, met in homes. They were smaller groups simply because they didn't have these huge places to meet. And they, in many cases, had to avoid uh, persecution, so they would meet privately. Uh, homes were the place that they would go and they would meet in these homes. But that's it's they, they still make up one church. When Paul writes to the church in Galatia or the church in Philippi, he's writing to a large group of people, but people that meet in small places or home churches or uh, meet by rivers or other places. Um, but but he, he means specifically uh, the church at large, uh, however it comes together. Uh, again, in our church culture, we have a tendency to think of, of a building. We think of a, a lot of people gathering together. We had church yesterday, but, but uh, the place people came uh, here at Calvary Chapel, Scott, yesterday, uh, they didn't come to a church. Uh, the church came to a building to gather. Uh, we call it a church, uh, but we miss the point. Uh, church doesn't really begin until people get here. And that's because Jesus said he would be in the midst of where the two or three are gathered in his name. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, throughout the Roman world, uh, the churches would be spread far and wide, depending on circumstances and elements of persecution. Uh, there would be churches that were um, small, other churches that would grow bigger based on where they were meeting. Uh, in Paul's little letter to Philemon, uh, I believe that was a pretty good-sized church. Philemon was a wealthy man, uh, and he would have had a big place, and I think that was probably what was going on in most of the places. But um, there's no preference for home churches or or big churches. Uh, I think culturally we just sort of dropped the ball. So, Scott, I hope that answers your question. Uh, thanks for paying attention. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Nacho from our mobile app. Uh, who is or what is the destroyer in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1? Uh, let me read the passage. Uh, I'll read it out of the NIV. Uh, Isaiah says, Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Now, uh, Isaiah, of course, prophesies uh, from the time that he lived in all the way to the very times of the the end, the time that we call the millennial reign of Christ. So his were very, very far-reaching prophecies. In this particular chapter, Nacho, uh, the destroyer, the traitor, refers to Assyria. Assyria was um, knocking down the doors of Israel. Assyria would uh, literally overtake uh, the northern tribes of, of uh, Israel. 
and um, everybody was afraid, and these prophecies were uh, from Isaiah warning Assyria, not only are you the destroyer, are you the traitor, but it's not always going to be that way for you. And in particular, this verse uh, seems to be a prophecy of the ultimate destruction of Assyria, uh, which did happen. So you may think you're all that right now, Assyria, but you're not. You may think because you're undefeated that you're going to stay that way. But when you stop destroying, I'm going to have somebody bigger than you. And, of course, we know that uh, God brought the Babylonians and, and he completely overwhelmed uh, the Assyrians in the process. So this is the first captivity, the ten northern tribes, uh, after um, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed um, the Assyrians. Uh, He would then move further south into Judah, and later, as we know, the final books of the Old Testament, the final prophets, uh, prophesied his complete overrun of of Israel, of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, the prophet that remained in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, a contemporary of Jeremiah, who was taken into captivity into Babylon in the first captivity. Uh, so all of those prophecies take care. So that's who it is. It is a reference to the king of Assyria and his army, his forces. So I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question anonymously. Uh, Pastor Ron, can the devil read our minds? The answer anonymous is no. Uh, He can influence us and he can plant thoughts in our minds for sure. Uh, But he can't read our minds. Remember, he's not God. He is a creation of God. And while he is a a great, uh, in fact, impeccable psychologist, um, he is a master manipulator of behavior. Uh, he doesn't have the power God has to read our minds. You know, we, we say that God knows our thoughts before we even say them. Well, that's true, but that's not true of the devil. Now, unfortunately, he's a great studier, and he will study you, and he'll know uh, by your habits and practices what you've been doing. But uh, he can't read your mind. He'll take lots of shots. He'll try everything that he can to um, mess with you. And he's good at it, but he can't read your mind. You don't have to worry about praying out loud. You don't have to worry about um, saying things out loud. Oh, the devil's going to know those things. Jesus is in you, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So you really don't need to worry about it at all. Hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to the phones and talk with Lauren on line one. Lauren, thanks for calling. You're on the air. All right. Um, why would, um, that he said, you're on the air. Um, why would, um, why would God, um, why would God make us beautiful if he, if he knew we were just going to sin? And, and why would he create us if he knew we were going to sin? Good question. I can answer that one for you. He made us beautiful. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 calls us his poem, his artistic expression of beauty. So we are made beautiful, and he loves us, and he looks at us and thinks, oh, what a perfect creation. You know, when he made you, you're seven years old, but when he made you, he thought, I just don't think it gets any better than that. And he did that even though he knew that you were going to sin, even though he knew uh, that people were going to reject him. He did it because he loves us. God is love, and he loves us, and he wants to give us an opportunity for the best. And he doesn't punish us. I mean, when we are created, he doesn't punish us for things we're going to do. When we do bad things, what happens then is that he... Um, let's the consequences come into our lives. And the best thing about this, this is a great question from a seven-year-old, the best thing about this is the minute you mess up, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And you know what he does? He looks at you and he says, oh, you are so beautiful all over again. So that's why he did it. And that's why he's going to continue to do it. And I'm sure that when he looks at you, he's just delighted and smiles and thinks that's about as good a work as he could do. Does that help you? When he looks at you, he's um, just delighted and smiles and thinks. I also have another question. Why would God, 
Why didn't God just turn Lucifer into the devil the minute he created him? Because he knew he was going to reject him anyways. Yeah. The, the answer is the same same one. He didn't uh, make him the devil right away because he wanted to give him a chance to be in the presence of God. It's like Adam and Eve. You know, when Adam and Eve were created, God knew they were going to sin, but he still wanted to spend some time with them. You know, when Lucifer, and that was the devil's name before uh, he was the devil, when Lucifer was created, God made him the most beautiful of all of his creations, of all of his angels. But just like you and me, he gave the devil free will. He had to make a choice to love God back. God loved him, but he had to make a choice. So he let him make that choice. And once he made the choice, the enemy fell and the consequences have been long lasting. But he had the same choice that you have and that I have. And that choice is to serve God and love God. And that's the choice that God is hoping that we all make. But God doesn't make us do things. He asks us to choose to love him and choose to serve him. Great questions. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate your calling. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is a question from Noah. I love your question, Noah. Uh, Pastor Ron, what was the significance of Mary washing Jesus' feet with her perfume? Now, this, of course, is Mary of Bethany uh, at uh, her and Martha and Lazarus' home. Uh, they were brothers and sisters. And the uh, significance of Mary washing Jesus' feet was pure worship. Now, specifically, Noah, Mary was preparing Jesus for his burial. You see, it seems that Mary had some spiritual insight that even the disciples didn't have, those who spent way more time with Jesus. And I think there's a reason for that, Noah. I think the reason is because the three times that we encounter Mary in the New Testament, all three times she's found at the feet of the Lord. In a good time, in a difficult time where she's grieving, but finally in this time where she's washing his feet, she's giving Jesus everything at great personal cost and sacrifice she's spending what is probably her dowry and she's doing it for Jesus because she understands what the disciples wouldn't she understands that Jesus is going to die and she prepares him for burial and Jesus said Mary has done a beautiful thing for me you want to do beautiful things for Jesus you be at his feet you know, the other time that she was at his feet was when Lazarus was sick and died. And even in her grief, she came running out to Jesus and fell at his feet. So Mary of Bethany, one of the key figures in the New Testament, however, briefly mentioned, but so instructive for us, truly a worshiper, truly one who got it. And I think Noah just as important as she didn't care what anybody thought. She was always going to be at the feet of Jesus. And being at his feet gave her insight and significance. So I hope that answers your question. Mary is a great, great study subject. Here is a question from Abe. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your calls. Uh, Abe says, should Christians be vegetarians? Uh, Abe, no, they can be, but they shouldn't be, or they don't have to be. Uh, there's nothing wrong with eating meat. Jesus declared all food clean. Uh, we need to remember that always when somebody tries to tell you what you should eat or what you shouldn't eat. And uh, I don't know what the source of your question is, but uh, if somebody's tried to tell you that you shouldn't eat meat because Jesus wouldn't eat meat, they don't know what they're talking about. And I hope you're not trying to tell people that or convince people. Uh, these are the areas that we just need to be uh, able to leave people the freedom to do whatever it is they're free to do in the Lord. It is for freedom we've been set free. Uh, I don't like vegetables, and I would be really sad if Jesus said we had to be vegetarians. Um, but no, Christians should not be, but they can be vegetarians. That's really, really important. Here is, let me see, Andy on line one. Andy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Andy, are you there? Yes. Hi, Andy. Hi. 
Pastor, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question about this um, uh, this TV show about Tyler Henry, the medium. Okay, what's the show? Excuse me? What's the name of the show? Uh, I think it's the medians. Okay, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Well, uh, what he does is he goes out uh, to the, I guess, to the movie stars or uh, actors and actresses' homes and tells them about, I don't know, about, you know, that their grandfather that's dead said this oh. and said that. And anyways, uh, yeah. yeah, I, I know what you're, you're I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, and he's a clairvoyant, and that kind of um, power, though it could be supernatural in nature, is not from God, and I don't think it's a show that we should watch. Uh, certainly, we shouldn't put any credibility in it at all. Uh, those who claim to, to visit the other side, uh, God says that's an abomination to him. Uh, those are familiar spirits, and all you have to do is read First Samuel chapter 28 to see how God feels about that. Thank you for calling, Andy. We'd love your calls, 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the monday edition we love your live calls it's Makes the show a lot more interesting than just hearing me talk. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question, an important one. How much affection is appropriate for a boyfriend and girlfriend, and how far is too far? Anonymous, these are really difficult and very personal questions. Um, I don't know because I don't know who you are. I have no way of knowing uh, what your level of temptation is. I have no way of knowing um, um, how the enemy is going to use um, his lies to try to get you to fall into sin. Um, uh, First and foremost, let me say this. Um, You need to be obedient to your parents. Uh, If your parents say don't hold hands or don't kiss or don't hug, then don't do it. Why? Because we're told very specifically that children should obey their parents for this is right in the Lord. So it's very important that you obey your parents. Generally, however, I'm not one of those guys who thinks that we ought to act like we're strangers when we've got something going on. Um, I don't think it's a sin to hold hands. I don't think it's a sin to occasionally... uh, kiss on the cheek or hug. Um, but the one thing that we do want to avoid is anything that's going to inflame our lust. Um, teenagers are, um, um, and that's the context, by the way, I didn't read that in the question, but uh, that's the context of this particular question. Teenagers are hormonal explosions waiting to happen. And so we've got to guard ourselves. and We have to do things in the light. What that means is that we've got to be um, um, aware that Jesus is there, and we've got to make the relationship honoring Him. I don't think that any single Christian should just sort of what I call sport dating, just because you don't want to be alone, so you're going to be with somebody. But but the minute you are interested in somebody, there ought to be sort of a, a level of pursuit in the sense that let's see if this is what God wants in our lives. Uh, I know people that have not even kissed until I said, you may now kiss your bride. Uh, others I know, and they're just as holy and just as honoring to the Lord, who have engaged in some kissing. Obviously, we know that there shouldn't be any sexual activity. And problem is that kissing leads to more temptation and more physical activity, and then we're going to be in that place where we could defile the relationship completely. So uh, this is a question you've got to answer for yourself. Uh, again, I don't think holding hands is a sin. I, I, I think sometimes we parents make way too big a deal out of that. On the other hand, 
uh, it's the parent's responsibility. They know their child to make sure that their children are safe. Most importantly, just remember that you represent Jesus Christ and he's there with you in everything that you do. And if you remember that he's there and if you remember your responsibility to walk in personal holiness, then you won't go anywhere near that line that would tempt you to cross that line. So just be careful. No sexual contact. By that I mean there shouldn't be any uh, physical contact between sexual parts. Um, just remember that the girl or the, the man that God has brought into your life, young or older, no matter how old you are, no matter what your experience is, if that person has really been brought to you by the Lord, then it's your responsibility to deal with that relationship in a godly sense. I could be more appropriate if I knew or had more detail, but um, just guard your heart, guard yourself. Here is uh, there's nothing there. Uh, let me go to another question real quickly. We have a, okay. I mean, we're, I'm having a technical difficulty here. That's why I'm sounding like I don't know what I'm doing. Here is a question from our mobile app from Rich. Will we have any question in heaven, or will being in the presence of the Lord cause these questions to be answered? Rich, you know, we, we can't imagine what it's going to be like. Um, but, but I think the, the, the best way for me personally to understand it is that when I'm in the presence of the Lord, I will have the answer to all the questions. I hope that makes sense. It's not like we're going to sit down, Jesus is going to sit and have a Bible study. We're going to know in full as we are known by God. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. So when we're in the presence of the Lord, we're going to have his heart, his mind. We're going to have a glorified, resurrected body. Our sin nature is going to be eradicated. And so we'll have the answers because we'll be in the presence of the answer. And the answer is always Jesus. I always get a kick out of little kids, you know, uh, we do chapel here, Paula and I, from time to time, and she usually gets a little kid, she says, because she's a little kid at heart, but you ask questions, you know, it's sort of an interactive Bible study, and all these kids, they raise their hands because they all want to participate, and then they realize they didn't really have anything to say, so when you say, well, what's the answer? Jesus? I think they understand more than we think they do. When we're in heaven and we're with the Lord then we're going to have the answer. We'll be in the presence of the answer. And all of the questions that we have on this earth are going to be nonsensical. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate the question very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Gregory. Which translation of the Bible is the most accurate? Um, Gregory, they're all good translations. I don't know. I personally believe that the 1984 version of the NIV is the best translation of the New Testament. I don't believe that's the case with the Old Testament. Uh, but I believe it's the best, uh, the most accurate of the New Testament. Um, there are people, obviously, who disagree with me strongly on that. Um, but what I do realize is that uh, you need to find a Bible that you're comfortable with and a Bible that you will read, and then that becomes a good translation. Uh, I would only caution staying away from the um, paraphrases. I'm not a fan of the answer, uh, uh, the, the message, I, I should have said, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Uh, I'm not a, a, a fan of some of the other paraphrases, but the um, translations are pretty dependable. I'm spending more time because the in, in 1984 NIV is getting almost impossible to find. I'm spending more time in the New Living Translation. I'm finding it very, very comfortable. Uh, the Old Testament, I would lean to the King James or the New King James. Um, but um, I, I don't think we really ought to get caught up with which is the most accurate. Um, some translations, King James, New King James, are word-for-word translations, and sometimes they're a little bit awkward when translated in English. Uh, the newer translations are thought-for-thought thought translations, and they make a little bit more sense uh, when we're reading it from a Western culture mindset. Um, all the translations are faithful to the manuscripts they are translating. 
It just depends whether they're translating the Textus Receptus, uh, which is a majority text, or the Alexandrian group of manuscripts. And that really is the difference between the newer translations as opposed to the King James and the New King James. So it just doesn't matter which one you read. And I don't think we ought to get at all caught up, Gregory, in, in one is better than the other. I think they're all uh, really, really good. Uh, Andy called back about Tyler Hendry. He wants me to reshare the scripture he said from Samuel. I uh, wants to have a scripture to share with the person he knows who watches the show. Uh, and it was First Samuel chapter twenty-eight. It's when uh, Saul goes to the witch of Endor, uh, and he says, uh, "Summon Samuel for me." And the the, the witch uh, is sort of tricked into doing it. And Samuel actually appears. God allowed him to come back, and Saul was judged for it. Now, uh, look at your Bible concordance and look at familiar spirits or or mediums. Um, throughout the Old Testament, God condemns it. God doesn't want us to look to fortune tellers or to clairvoyance uh, to, to determine our future. Uh, nor does he want us to look at horoscopes. So he wants us to learn to trust in him. And this kind of nonsense, uh, Andy, is something that that um, New Testament Christians should have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with. By the way, the Jews knew that they were off limits. God wants us to trust Him and Him alone with our futures. And when we seek these demonic spirits, and that's what they are, and I don't know Tyler Hendry, I didn't know the show, but uh, I know the type of show Kenny Kingston when I was growing up was big. Gene Dixon was even uh, more famous when I was big, or when I was growing up. Um, but they've never, they've, they've always been around, and any power that they have, now most of it is just phony stuff, but if there's any power, it's evil power, it's supernatural, but it's evil power, uh, and most of the time they're just charlatans. So, First Samuel chapter 28 was the passage, um, just tell your person instead of, of, uh, scriptures about clairvoyance or mediums or consulting familiar spirits, uh, just tell that person to read the Bible and they'll have all the information they know. Thank you, Andy. I'm sorry we were going up the break. The music had already started, so I had to cut you off. Uh, the computer cut you off, actually, so thanks for the, for the return call. Here's a question from Larry. Pastor Ron, why did John the Baptist have doubts about Jesus? Uh, you know, there's no doubt, Larry, that John knew who Jesus was. In fact, they were cousins. John baptized him and said, it is I who should be baptized by you. Uh, he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. He knew exactly who he was. But we have to understand the Jewish mindset to understand why John had doubts. And then we'll understand that John is just like you are, Larry, and just like I am. He expected Jesus, when he came, the Messiah, the Christ, to overturn Rome and restore control of Jerusalem into the hands of Jews, to Israel. And that didn't happen. And now John the Baptist is thrown in prison. He knows his days are numbered. He still has disciples. John the Baptist had many, many disciples. And they wanted to know, John is, is having a hard time in prison. He's afraid. His life is coming to an end. He wants to know, are you the one? I thought you were the one, but you're the one. And so his doubts were based on his circumstance. His doubts were based on the fact that, well, I expected the Messiah to establish his kingdom. By the way, so did Jesus' disciples all the way to the end. As they were going into Jerusalem for the final week of Jesus' life, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times. Well, John was thinking from that Jewish mindset the very same way. Why is Rome still in charge? Why am I under lock and key in the prison of Herod? And the more difficult his life became, the more pain that he would endure, the lonelier that he would become, the more doubts he would have. There would be an enemy there trying to destroy him just as he tries to destroy you or me. And for a minute, his mind was turned by circumstances. See, when I said earlier that he's just like us, we do that all the time. We take a step of faith, we have expectations that it's going to turn out a certain way. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we start thinking, well, was I wrong? Did I hear right from the Lord? Is this what he told me to do? And we start having second and third and 50 doubts. 
and the enemy capitalizes on that, and that's what he did with John. You know what's really interesting is Jesus is replying to him. When Jesus sent John's disciples back to him, you tell John this, the sick are healed, the blind can see, the lame can walk. You see, John the Baptist had forgotten that that was the work of the Messiah. Far more important than the work of restoring the kingdom of Israel at that particular time. And when John received that message, he must have sat down and thought, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry I had any doubts. I just forgot. One of the things, Larry, that every one of us has to deal with is trusting God when our expectations are not met. Please remember that God is always going to keep his promises. And they just misunderstood what Jesus came to do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox anonymously. Uh, Today is National Napping Day. I struggle with taking naps because I'm wasting, I think I'm wasting time, and I feel the Lord may want to use me, and here I am sleeping. Could napping be wrong? Um, I didn't know it was National Napping Day. I happen to be the world's worst napper. Uh, if I go to sleep for you in a few minutes, I feel like I, I've been in a coma when I get up, so I, it just doesn't work well for me. Uh, Paula, on the other hand, is a professional napper. She can lay down for an hour almost to the minute, and she wakes up, you know, clicking her heels. So uh, Paula have a happy national nap in napping day. Um, but, but don't struggle taking naps. We all need rest. Um, you know, we're not going to spend all of our time physically in, in, in work for the Lord. But here's what you do. If you need a nap, take it. Go to sleep thinking about Jesus. Ask Jesus to, to speak to you while you're while you're napping. And then when you get up from your nap and you're rested, then get busy again serving the Lord. He knows we need naps. Uh, he was sleepy. He got tired. He understands everything that we go through. Uh, his disciples all fell asleep even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine that? Jesus said, just watch and pray. And they couldn't even do that. So he understands the frailty of our human condition. So don't struggle with taking naps. You're not wasting time. Just when you're out and when the opportunity presents itself, then share Jesus with people. By the way, don't do it under the compulsion of, well, i got to be serving, got to be serving. Just be with Jesus. Make this relationship so natural that when you're walking with Jesus, when you're walking with Him, You'll hear his voice, not audibly, but you'll hear his voice when you open his word. He's right there. And before you go out the door, say, Jesus, I want to take you with me, and any opportunity you have, bring it to me. That way you're not looking for opportunities. He's bringing you to the opportunities, and you'll recognize them. So don't struggle with taking naps. You're not wasting time. You're just resting, and rest is always a good thing. When you can get it, get it. I wish I was better at resting than I am. I'm just not. But we need to do the best we can. Thank you. I hope that helps. Here is a question from Felicia. She says, can someone lose their salvation? Felicia, when somebody really and truly meets Jesus and they're born again, Ephesians chapter 1 says that at that moment, we are sealed with a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, I know there are lots of views on whether somebody can lose their salvation or somebody can choose to walk away from their salvation. I understand the arguments. We see so many people who seem to start well and don't finish well, and we think, well, maybe they lost their salvation, or did they? Or when the enemies, we mess up, the enemy's lying to us. You're going to lose your salvation. God's not not, uh, going to be with you anymore. There's no one who believes that you can lose your salvation or even walk away from your salvation, who can exegete Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Nobody can. We're sealed with the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, Felicia, if I'm the one who's giving the guarantee, that guarantee's only as good as my ability to, to perform on, on my promise. But, but I don't have that ability. But this is a guarantee that comes from God. And if God seals us, remember when Noah 
and Mrs. Noah and the kids were sealed in the ark. They were preserved. They were safe. No matter what happened outside, they were safe. Why? Because God sealed them in. Well, we have a much better sealing process because Jesus comes to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Ephesians that that's a deposit, sort of a prepayment, guaranteeing the outcome. The outcome is to be with Jesus. So no, you cannot. No one can lose their salvation. Now here's the problem we have. We see so many people who say they were Christians and then they turn away from God and we think, well, they lost their salvation or they walked away from their salvation. No, John, 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us to prove they were never part of us. You can read the parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives the definition, the meaning of the parable. He says, as Christians, our job is to scatter seed, seed being the word of God. Just throw it everywhere we go and throw it very liberally, very generously. But the soil that it falls on is different. Some receive it with joy immediately, and it appears that there's there's a, a harvest right away. But because the soil is shallow, there's no root that's formed to grow, and they they immediately walk away. They weren't saved and then suddenly unsaved. They just never were saved in the first place. There are a lot of people who make emotional commitments to Jesus. And then the cares and the worries of this world choke out the seed, making it unfruitful. We'd look at somebody and think, well, they're probably not even saved. Well, they may be, but there's no fruit coming from their lives. But that's not God's fault. He's still the active ingredient in sealing the human heart. So the question is not whether we can lose it. Were we ever saved? If we are, we can't lose it. We can go through bad times. We can turn away from God. The the story of the prodigal, of course, is the most famous example. But Jesus will be scanning the horizon, waiting for you to come back, just like the father and the prodigal son story. So no, you can't lose your salvation. Just be sure you have it. Paul says to the Philippians that we should work out our salvation, not work for, but work out our salvation with fear and trembling. One other thought, Felicia, and I hope this will bring you comfort. The Bible says that Jesus is the author, the beginner, and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. I think too many of us, we, we think that, that, well, Jesus started it, but i got to finish it. And we sort of grade ourselves based on our performance. If you've met Jesus, if he's truly come into your heart, You're his, and you're always going to be his. And if you turn away from him, he's going to bring down consequences to bear. He's going to make your life difficult and miserable because he wants you to come back running to him in obedience. The story of the prodigal says when he came to his own mind, I like that, when he came to his senses, the NIV says. Well, you'll come through circumstances, through consequences to your senses. A mind not controlled by the enemy, but your own mind, the mind that we've been given in Christ. And there may be severe consequences, there may be lots and lots of pain, but Jesus will finish what he began. So that's why every day we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not somebody else's. And Felicia, for the most part, I think this is a question that really doesn't have a whole lot of of edifying substance to us. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Dorian calling from San Antonio on line one. Dorian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. A quick question. My son had a question that I really couldn't answer um, as far as us. Um, we came from Adam and Eve, of course, and then there was Noah. And with Noah, um, explaining to him that there were descendants from them, I'm not sure how to explain that to him. And I'm wondering if you can explain it better because he's he's wondering about like nationalities, races. Yeah. Um, if we if we originally came from Adam and Eve, then how are these races and whatnot? So I'm wondering if you can uh, expound on that a bit more. Can I can I help, Dorian. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Pray for your friend. Uh, Genesis chapter 11 is the answer. It's the table of nations, and it discusses the, 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 the mankind's attempt to rebel against God. They were building a tower to the heavens. It uh, doesn't mean they were trying to reach heaven with the tower. They were building a tower. If you pay really careful attention, they were waterproofing the bricks, even though God um, uh, had promised never to flood the, the earth again, as he did in Noah's flood. Um, you know, the people wanted to sin. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be governed by God. And they thought, well, just in case, let's build this tower. So if the flood comes, we'll, we'll be able to get high enough that we won't um, we won't be judged. We, we won't die. And God, looking down from heaven, this is human language, trying to describe an infant God, said, you know, I can now see that man's heart is only evil all the time. Every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. And so he confused their languages. Now, when he confused the languages, there would be people groups that would scatter to all parts of the world. And as they scattered to all parts of the world, um, the gene pool would be um, diminished immeasurably. And so people would start looking more alike. They would sound more alike. Uh, They would uh, evolve. I don't mean evolution, but uh, micro-evolution. They would evolve uh, so that they would be more suited through through, um, the birth process. They'd be more suited to the environment around them. And that's where you get the different skin colors. You get the different languages, the different nationalities. You know, where we all began from one giant perfect gene pool, uh, suddenly uh, we're marrying sisters and cousins and and, um, and and things. So that's where the different races of people came. Um, tell me, read Genesis chapter 11. Uh, there's a lot of information on Genesis 11 available online, um, but if he wants to, you can call back. Thanks for caring about your friend, Dorian. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate the calls and the questions. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Tonight, ladies, the Retreat Debrief Men and Women's Bible Study. We'll see you tomorrow at 4. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.